There was little doubt among Missouri's political universe that Todd Richardson would become Speaker of the House. Most expected him to take on that role in January 2017, but Richardson's political plans changed dramatically after House Speaker John Deal resigned at the end of the 2015 session. House Republicans picked Richardson to be their new leader, and his big priority was improving his chamber's reputation. I don't think the last you know five months have put the legislature and, and this public institution in a particularly good light. Um, and it's my great hope that we can get back to work and focusing on uh, improving that public perception. Flash forward to 2018, and Richardson is in his final year before term limits kick in. He decided against running for state auditor this year to focus on the legislative session at hand. And it's unknown if Richardson will ever run for elected office in the future. Senate Republicans and legislative Democrats didn't embrace all of Richardson's agenda. But many lawmakers, including Speaker-elect Elijah Haar of Springfield, felt that Richardson succeeded in setting a good tone in the Missouri General Assembly's lower chamber. He is one of the unique individuals that inspires respect on both sides of the aisle from um, and in, in all parts of the caucus, um, whether you're part of the Apple Pie Caucus or the Conservative Caucus. Um, he, he is well-liked. People trust him and believe in him. And so I, I think he's his capabilities are such that he will be in the political sphere at some place. And I don't know if that is a 2020 statewide campaign. Um, there's always the possibility that that if the attorney general were to be successful in the Senate campaign, Todd's obviously a very successful attorney and would make a great appointee to that position. Um, Todd, Todd will be back in the political space at some point. He's just too talented not to be. On this edition of Politically Speaking, Richardson joins me to talk about the year ahead in the Missouri House. The Poplar Bluff Republican also reflects on public service and much more. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens. Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast, the only show about Missouri politics that firmly believes that both Tyler and Greg Hansborough belong in the Hall of Famous Missourians. We need to work on that. We do need to work on that. I'm your host today, Jason Rosenbaum, a political reporter uh, for St. Louis Public Radio. The voice you just heard is Poplar Bluff legend uh, and, and Speaker of the Missouri House. Todd Richardson. And also probably a friend of the Hansboroughs. Uh, as I probably said on a previous show, Greg Hansborough, who is the brother of famous basketball player Tyler Hansborough, was actually a friend of mine in college. So that is my tenuous relationship with Popper Bluff, Missouri. Everywhere you look, you'll find a connection to Popper Bluff somewhere. But uh, certainly, uh, everybody in Popper Bluff is very proud of the Hansboroughs. And uh, a lot of people in North Carolina are proud of them, too. So Yeah, very much so. So I want to get the political stuff out of the way. Sure. You made news at the end of 2017 when you announced you were not going to run for state auditor. You had, I don't think you had ever officially announced, but people kind of thought that you were going to run for statewide office. First of all, um, I, I take it you're at peace with that decision because sure. because not running for statewide office is obviously uh, you, you don't get it a chance to move up, but you probably have a lot more time to not only deal with your job at hand, but also 
just spending more time with your family and enjoying life. Is that fair to say? Oh, I think it is fair to say. And look, the decision, I, I love public service. And, and it's the thing that drove me uh, to run for the state house in 2010 was a belief that good people in public office make a difference. And so the opportunity uh, to continue that service in, in statewide office was, was attractive. But at the end of the day, um, as I looked at the things that were most important to me over the over the next year, it was really finishing uh, this job uh, and doing it the way that uh, that I wanted to do it. So the opportunity to focus uh, on the legislative session and uh, and the end of my time here in the House is something I'm looking forward to. The interesting thing is when I was talking with people about your decision, there was really no ulterior motive or secret scandal attached to it. It just was basically like you. You just didn't want to put the energy and effort it took to run for statewide office when you wanted to focus on like your last year. Is that fair to say? It's a huge commitment. Running for statewide office is a is a huge commitment of time and and energy, um, and I don't think there's any question that it would have taken away from my ability to do some of the things in my final session uh, that I wanted to do. And the, and really, the decision was as simple as as that. And uh, it's an important office, uh, state auditor, and I know we're going to have some uh, great. Republican candidates that are going to be running for it, and I and I know they're going to put the time and energy uh, that that job's going to demand into it. But it, this gives me the chance to focus uh, on this job. This is a basic question. I know people in the Missouri political world probably already know a lot of this information, but for people that are listening for the first time that want a sense of what it's like to hold this position, I want to get yeah. you to have a couple minutes to explain that. Well, I don't know if I could do it all in a couple of minutes, Maybe Jason, but um, but we'll we'll give it a try. Listen, the the job of speaker, um, you know, starts and ends with uh, the the job of of trying to manage. Uh, the session as it goes on and you know for example this year uh, we started the session on day one with 850 bills that had been pre-filed uh, so part a big part of the responsibility that I have is to make sure that those bills get referred uh, in a timely manner decide what gets referred and what doesn't um, and which committees they, they go to and that takes uh, an enormous amount of time in addition to the time we spend uh, obviously out on the floor and, and doing the things that are more more public in nature. But there's a big administrative side of the job of being the Speaker of the House too and you, you're responsible for you know overseeing uh, a large number of employees uh, making sure that the other members of the House have what they need to be successful. At the end of the day I've always viewed the job of, of Speaker as, as trying to create the kind of environment where the good men and women who come to Jefferson City can, can be successful. Um, it takes a lot of work to get that job done. Well, you actually became speaker kind of unexpectedly. There was a lot of expectation that you would be speaker in 2017 and 2018. Yeah. But because John Deal resigned at the end of the 2015 session, that meant an entire extra year of your life was devoted to this job. Um, beyond just asking how that affected how you did things, I, I do want to ask, like, since you started and since one of your main objectives was improving not only the reputation but the operations of the house post deal um do you think you've succeeded in that and if so how how do you think things have gone since that very frantic last days of session in 2015. i think we've made tremendous improvements um, to the way the building uh and the culture uh here in this building is not only perceived but in fact uh, is it was a big uh, mission of mine to to try to to make that happen um, and we had a lot of support and help um, from the rest of the members of the House in accomplishing that mission. I don't think it's a mission that's ever finished. I think 
this is a place where you've got to be looking to constantly improve and we will continue to make those efforts uh, over the next year but I think if you look at the capital today um, compared to where it was back in 2015 I think we've made tremendous improvements and I'm proud of those. So on the sexual harassment front one of the first things that you did and this was long before the discussion entered into the, the national consciousness was you tasked uh, major policy changes within the House when dealing with sexual harassment. I'd like you to detail some of that and also add if you want to do anything more before you leave into, at the end of 2018. We, we started with a group of, of legislators, human resource officers, and, and what we did was ask them to do a review top to bottom of our intern policy, our sexual harassment policy, and make some recommendations back on the changes and we sought a tremendous amount of input from all over the state from higher education institutions the women's foundation kansas city was a tremendous partner and what we did i think is impose uh, what is really a policy that that is uh, as good as any you'll find uh, anywhere in the country and certainly in any state house and that starts with having a robust requirement of mandated reporters. Um, people are required to report sexual harassment when they see it. Starts with training for all of our members and all of our staff on a regular basis and making sure we have a fair process to deal with complaints uh, when they happen. Um, and so that process uh, I think has proved to be very, very successful. But we're constantly reviewing it and looking for ways uh, to, to improve it. And, you know, we've, we've made some of those changes along the way. Do you think that that actually these policies need to be put into statute? Because actually, Illinois, I think, is, is considering putting changes yeah. in statute. Our, ours are in place by House rules, so they are, they are requirements. Um, so I would certainly wouldn't be opposed to, to doing them by statute. But our, our rules... Um, I think are robust enough that, that they make them requirements. Well, let's roll into some of the issues and, and to transition more smoothly. Let's talk about overhauling ethics laws. I know that's been a priority of yours since the beginning. Um, one of the things that you want to try again is curtailing free lobbyist uh, meals, entertainment, and travel. Uh, you've often passed bills doing that very quickly only for them to be uh, thrown into the Senate pit of doom, so to speak. <laughs> Um, th there's a lot of opposition to that in the Senate. I think people have various reasons for that. Sure. Um, what's kind of your expectations on that issue? Because, I mean, I've been reporting on this proposal since I started reporting, and there's always a lot of talk about banning these freebies, but there's n never any action. Yeah, I, I'm always optimistic at the beginning of session, and uh, I'm optimistic on this issue again this year. The House is going to make it once again an early, early priority. And I'm hopeful that the Senate will be able to find a path to, to get something um, in this space across across the finish line. But I think even if they're not able to do that, having the conversation um, about this issue is important. And if you look at the number of, of lobbyist gifts um, that are being taken today compared to where they were, say, five or six years ago, there's been a pretty dramatic reduction in them. And so, I, listen, I think there ought to be an outright ban on, on all the gifts, and I think it's one of those things that's important to how the public perceives what we do in this building. I don't think um, that we have men and women in this building that are doing things because someone bought them a free meal, but I do think it speaks to the level of the public's trust and confidence in what we do here, which is important. So to that extent, um, we'll keep talking. that to the extent that that improves it, we're going to continue to talk about it. The other ethical uh, area that 
both Republicans and Democrats have talked to me about in the interim is kind of the fallback, fallout from Amendment 2. Yeah. Um, I have to be candid here. I have not found a single Republican or Democrat who feels that that amendment is working. Um, it is very easy to get around it through either political action committees or 501c4s. It's even possible for somebody to go to a fundraiser for a PAC and say, give a million dollars to this PAC, and then that PAC could hypothetically help them. There's the entire question of local candidates being able to raise unlimited amounts of money. And it's, it's, it's even easy for like those types of candidates to donate that money to a 501c4. So my question is, I know that there's a lot of opposition among Republicans to campaign donation limits. That's probably why Amendment 2 happened in the first place. But given that they're in the Constitution for now, do you think that there is going to be any interest among the Republican majority of actually fixing some of the deficiencies? And when I talk about deficiencies, capping local candidates, uh, making it harder to coordinate with PACs, and maybe making it more difficult to donate to 501c4s. What, what's kind of your thoughts on all of those possibilities? Well, I don't. I, I think you start from a standpoint that no no campaign finance system is is perfect, and I don't think the system we had prior to Amendment Two was perfect. Uh, I certainly think there are a number of problems that exist with the application of Amendment Two, um, and we're going to struggle. Candidates are going to struggle with that um, throughout the 2018 uh, cycle. We have uh, members who have filed bills. I do think there is an appetite to try to clarify and to clean up uh, some of the places where there's some, some uncertainty there and to try to get the best system of campaign finance that we can have, um, understanding that no system is going to be perfect. Any particular ones you think might get traction? I think the issue of, of the application to local candidates is one that was in, of interest last year. It's, it's a, in my view, a big glaring hole in, in what we had there. Someone could theoretically uh, say that they're running for the city council, raise money in unlimited contributions, and then there's no problem with them converting that money to another race. Um, I think that the Ethics Commission says they can't roll it over right. to a state, but as I mentioned, they could donate to a 501c4, right. or they could run independent expenditures for themselves. There are ways to do it. I'm yeah, just pointing that and out. I, and, I, and, I think, and I think the part of the problem uh, is that the Ethics Commission is going to have a very difficult time because there's very little guidance on what does coordination mean. Um, and, and so how those rules are applied, I think at some point, um, if those aren't clarified, either by the Ethics Commission or by the courts, the legislature is going to have to step in and provide some clarity. I remember talking with you in 2012, near the beginning of 2013 session, about 501c4s and uh, showcasing who donates to them. Yeah. Um, that that type of legislation, I don't think ever never materialized. I think there was difficulty in the fact that you're talking about a federal tax system right. and that you may need federal legislation. But obviously, with the governor's 501c4, and frankly, with 501c4 is getting involved in ballot initiatives like the minimum wage fight kind of on the left. Um, there does seem to be some appetite to reveal who donates to 501c4s. Given that there's a lot of opposition yeah. and there's also a lot of complexity, what do you what do you think about that issue? I think it's a very difficult issue. And when I looked at it in 2012, I found that exact same thing that you're talking about. It's a very complex issue to deal with. Um, and I, I think there's reason to be concerned um, about requiring uh, everyone to have to, to disclose all of their donors. And the example, you know, that, that we looked at back in 2012 was, was not just the, the single interest, you know, 501c4s, but what if you have a broader group that's a 501c4? They have to disclose every single member that, that donates to the Red Cross if they get involved in a, in a cigarette tax increase or 
you know, th those kinds of, of ballot initiatives make that issue very, very tough and complex to do. So I think that that has been uh, obviously a big point of conversation in the legislature for the past couple of years, and I think you've seen the level of opposition uh, to requiring those uh, disclosures grow along with the support for doing it. So on, I read somewhere that you could be interested in changing the Sunshine Law, primarily because the way it's written now, I think it was written like what, in the 80s or 90s, well before like text messaging and and even non-types of email became regular things. I, I'm interested in that because obviously there's been a lot of talk about the Sunshine Law because of the Confide app and the governor's office. But more broadly, it seems to have brought to, to bear that the Sunshine Law really hasn't kept up with technological advances. So I'm interested to hear if there might be some interest in that, not only because of the fact that it's in the news, but because it might be a necessity at this point. Yeah, I don't think uh, that the interest there is has really anything to do with the recent events. We've had members that have uh, been working on on efforts to update the Sunshine Law for for a couple of years now, and, and the reasons are exactly what you said, Jason. That's as technology changes, as the modes of communication change, uh, there's a need to to update that law. And so, what what I've said is, I think there's an I think everyone shares a desire to have an open and transparent uh, government, but we want that sunshine law to, to make sense and, and to to be in a place that people can comply with it um, and that the law speaks to, to modern technological advances. So uh, to that extent, I know we're going to have some members that are going to dig into trying to, to solve that problem as we move forward in the session. One thing that uh, became somewhat prominent near the end of 2017 is there's members of the House and Senate that want to cut income taxes. Yes. Uh, Representative Fitzwater and Senator Eigel have a proposal that would cut the state income tax and raise the gas tax. Um, the thing is, though, like the Missouri legislature cut taxes, what, three years ago? And it still hasn't gone completely into effect yet. And I, I was at the press conference with Senate President Pro Tem Ron Richard yesterday, and he said, quote, he doesn't want to brown back state government, which is a reference to Kansas and how Kansas has had all sorts of problems after they cut taxes. With that as a backdrop, what do you think the, 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 the prognosis is for cutting taxes this year? I think the prognosis that on tax reform happening in Missouri is very good. Whether that's a, a discussion that gets reaches a conclusion this year or not, I think is an open question. But I think there's a strong appetite in both the House and the Senate to do a broader based tax reform uh, than we did the last time we really looked at taxes, which was, uh, as you said, three three years ago. Um, and it, it means a couple of things. It doesn't just mean cutting taxes, but I do think that that's a good thing. Anytime we can return more uh, of Missourians' tax dollars and, and put them in their pocket, that's a good thing. But we want to do so. We want to do it responsibly. It's also about simplifying and that that tax structure that we have in Missouri and making sure that uh, that it's a fair tax structure. And so I think you're going to see not only the efforts of Senator Eigel and Representative Fitzwater, uh, but the efforts of Senator Koenig and others in, in the House really taking a hard look at what that tax structure overall in Missouri is uh, going to look like. And I'm pretty optimistic that, that, that we'll be able to find some consensus and common ground on where we'd like to go. Whether we can get all of that done in this legislative session, I think, is the open question. The other tax-related thing that's come to pass is the low-income housing tax credit. Um, which we've been talking about kind of incessantly for yeah. years. But now that the governor has engineered a, a situation where there are no low-income housing tax credits on the state level being issued in 2018, 
he has a lot of leverage. He can basically be like, well, I control this board. I I'm going to keep it at zero until you all change the program. He he's holding all the cards right now. So I know that this is a tough issue because there are really strong arguments on both sides of keeping the low-income housing tax credit the same because it does a legitimate good at providing low-income housing. But the governor and his allies have said, this is a really inefficient program and it's kind of beyond repair, so to speak. You have to come up with a completely different idea. Talked with you a lot about this over the years, but what's kind of your thought on that issue given that it does seem like the, the governor has a great deal of leverage to actually instill changes in this program. Well, I think that that is certainly true. And, and the landscape and sort of the status quo is different on this issue than it was the last several times the legislature has considered it. But I think there's a good opportunity to use this as, as a time to talk about how to make that program more efficient, to talk about where, it, where the appropriate level of spending should be in, in that kind of program and in the other tax credits we have. You know, we have a system in Missouri right now where we spend over $600 million a year on various tax credit programs. Most of them do some very, very good things. But the legislature needs to ask the question of how much can we afford to spend on, on these types of programs given the other priorities we've got. And I think there's a way to find a balance between those two perspectives. Um, and I think there's a way to have a, a more efficient, um, perhaps a little leaner, low-income tax uh, housing tax credit program than we have today, but still be able to take advantage of the good work that, that uh, those credits allow to happen. So that's what I want to see the legislature looking for towards this year is how do we reform the program? Uh, how do we make it more efficient to make sure that those dollars are being spent wisely? And what is the appropriate level uh, that we ought to set uh, the limits for that program? And the other aspect of the Eigel Fitzwater plan is raising the gas tax. And that was there's a larger gas tax increase that was put forward by a, a, a House Senate commission. I, I, I've been following issues of transportation probably as long as you have. I think that everyone agrees that the need is there, that the disagreement is how to pay for it. You know, the sales tax increase failed miserably. Uh, there was an effort to put a smaller gas tax uh, and didn't go through the House. This one I think would have to go to the people, and I don't know if it'll pass or not, but. Do you think that there's some momentum to pass something out of the legislature, a tax increase, and have voters vote on it this year? I'm, I'm not sure yet, Jason, whether that, that appetite exists or not. I think there's always going to be reservations in this Republican majority about raising taxes of any kind. I do think that there is a strong commitment to try to address transportation infrastructure. Um, people recognize that Missouri sits in a very unique spot geographically. We're at the confluence of a lot of rail, rivers, and roads here in Missouri, and they're big, important parts to our economy. Um, but we're going to have to wrestle with what is our long-term answer to transportation funding. Um, now, the, the gas tax structure has been around for a long time. It's been a, a, a reliable structure for funding Missouri roads. And so the question is, are we going to continue with that type of structure? And if so, what does that rate need to be? Um, I, I do think that, that that conversation is part of broader tax reform, has a whole lot more likely uh, hood of success than it does standing alone. Standing alone. So if someone just put forth a bill that raises the gas tax by 10 cents, but it doesn't couple it with income tax reductions, it's probably not going to have as good of a chance. I, I, think, that's, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. I, this might be a question, uh, an issue that may seem out of left field, but one thing that I've noticed from talking with Marcelo some Marcelo Zuna is out of left field now. That's the most important left field 
Is that is issue. is he on the Cardinals? He is. I'm it's, not a Cardinals fan. I'm a see, White Jason, Sox fan. We, we need to work on that. Yeah, I if should. You're going to be broadcasting for St. Louis Public Radio. You've got to know who the Cardinals' new left fielder I, is. I should, and honestly, I don't know anybody's on the White Sox right now because my my focus now is on the Milwaukee Bucks winning an NBA title with uh, Giannis. But on that note. Um, one thing that I've noticed from talking with some Republicans is there does seem to be some interest in maybe um, legalizing marijuana for medicinal purposes. I think legalizing it recreationally is going to have a whole lot of opposition no for question. various reasons. But I talked with Representative Jim Neely about this topic uh, at length. There's a ballot initiative that's kind of swirling in the background. I think there's two, two lines of thoughts. One, that the legislature comes up with its own system. The other is just letting the ballot initiative pass or fail on its own. Um, what's kind of your thought on that? Do you think that the legislature may act in reaction to this ballot initiative? Or do you think the ballot initiative may be the way medical marijuana is legal? In this I'm not sure which which avenue uh, ultimately ends up being the dominant one. But I, I will say that there has been a dramatic change in the conversation surrounding this issue, even in the seven years that I've been in the legislature. If you told me when I'd walked in the door, that you'd have as many conservative Republicans supporting some type of, of legalization of marijuana, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, that being said, I, I believe the legislature is the best place to, to tackle this issue. Um, as you've seen in other states that have tackled the issue, the issues surrounding enforcement, um, surrounding who, who it's going to be made available to or who it's legal for, uh, are complex and they change. And so the ability for the legislature to come in to, to do the hard work to craft a, uh, a good piece of legislation, and then to have the ability to update that legislation as, as circumstances arise, I think are really important here. So I, I think you'll see uh, that issue continue to move forward in the legislature, uh, but I also won't be surprised to see uh, that issue on the ballot, and I certainly wouldn't be surprised to see it be successful on the ballot. It, 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 it does seem like there's an interesting coalition between like left of center people and conservatives on this where, issue. Where I realized that this issue was, was in a different place than it had been before, uh, we have a group in Missouri called the Silver Haired Legislature, yeah. and they are a group of, of senior citizens. Doesn't one that, of your predecessors have that, Jim Kreider, or is he not involved with that anymore? I'm not sure if, if Speaker Kreider is involved in that or not, but I was meeting with them uh, earlier this year, and they were going through, their, they meet in Jefferson City, they debate policy proposals and then present them to us, and they come up with some, some great ideas and some things that we've acted on. But one of their top three priorities uh, this year on their list of things is um, medical marijuana in Missouri. And that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, point to this sort of strange coalition that, that develops around this issue. Last year, the, the House uh, tried to expand the availability of charter schools. It passed very narrowly, did not get any traction in the Senate. It's very interesting to me living in St. Louis that there actually seems to be a consensus among the ruling Democratic power base that charter schools are great. Um, and then the legislative Democratic uh, majority here and also some Republicans absolutely detest charter schools. They think they're, they're parasitic entities that take money and students away from like, regular non-charter schools. Um, that seems to be kind of the discourse around that issue. And I think that might be why it didn't get ultimate traction. What do, what's your prognosis this year, given that I don't know if people's minds have radically changed on that issue since last year. What, what's, how do you think that'll fare? Education reform is one of the most difficult issues in this building, and it's difficult because people care a lot about education. It's, it's 
a priority for every member, whether you're on a pro-reform side of the debate or, or whether you're against some of the reforms. I've always been a big believer that we ought to try to expand educational opportunities for kids that don't have access to, to a quality education. And we have areas of our state that people don't have that access to a good public education. And in those situations, I think having the ability to have charter schools, high-performing charter schools, with the right accountability metrics in, in them makes sense. And I've had the chance to tour some charter schools in St. Louis. Um, not, not every charter school is great. Um, they have bad, bad apples, too. But the record of success of charter schools, um, some charter schools, and particularly in St. Louis, is pretty solid. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to, to move on that issue uh, again, and I'd really like to see it become an issue that has more bipartisan support than it has today. I just heard the bell ring, so I'm going to kind of uh, wrap this up a little bit. With, we still answer to the bell. We, we do answer to the bell. I do want to ask, because this has been a big issue in the Senate, a lot of senators are not happy with the way the governor has dealt with the legislature. It seems like members of the Republican caucus in the House seem to be more amenable to what he's doing. Um, as, qu as quickly as you can so you're not late to the House. What's your relationship like with the governor and what advice would you have when dealing with the legislature? Because it seems like there were some growing pains with this entire situation and um, I'm interested to hear your perspective on that. Well, I'm not sure that, that this situation is particularly unique. I think if you go back and you look at the relationship that governors have, have had with the legislature, and you look at it in other states, the, the legislature and, and the governor oftentimes have disagreements. That's sort of the way our, our system is, is set up. Um, you know, for I, I think members of both the House and the Senate, for the disagreements that, that we've had with the governor on specific issues, um, it's nice to have somebody in the uh, executive branch that, that will help us work on these priorities and, and be able to do it in a way where we don't have to override a veto to accomplish the big things that, that we want to do. So my hope is that you're going to see uh, this session a better working relationship with the, uh, with the executive and, and the legislature than, than we had last session. And uh, I'm optimistic that that's going to happen. But there's going to be disagreements, too. Uh, there, there always are. There are disagreements between the House dis and the Senate. There's disagreements between the House and the governor. And there will be disagreements between the Senate and the governor. It's just sort of the nature of the system. And that's not all a bad thing. You could argue that having some disagreements is a good thing because you ultimately get to a better policy outcome. But you could also say that calling out specific senators by name maybe isn't helpful to achieving that. I'm not, I don't know if he's called out any House members by name yet, but I'm sure if he does, you may have a different reaction to to this entire situation. Yes, very I think much that's fair to say. So uh, thank you very much for, for giving some precious amounts of your time to talking with me. This is the first time I've ever done a podcast in the speaker's office, which I've been in many times. It's a, it's a very beautiful office, by the way. Thank you. And uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And how would people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World at, Wide Web? At Rep T. Richardson. With an underscore. With an underscore. The underscore is right. very important. It is. And I also just want to add as a parting note that the speaker has some very sharp glasses today. He is obviously trying to emulate Jason Rosenbaum. I call them my Rosenbaums, so I, I put that on the record. I am very honored by that. Thank you very much, and so long. Thanks, Jason.